We will be in Luke chapter 2. You can turn there in your Bibles now. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who he was engaged to, him, wait, Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Yeah, but the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you a good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in the manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heavens and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what, they, at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Campbell. Merry Christmas. We are one more sermon into this series. I'm looking forward to having uh, the Christmas story not only read, but uh, we're going to have an opportunity to, to try to unpack that verse by verse like we have been doing. Um, but, you know, since this is uh, such an important day and it is just some, it's one of those holidays that we just uh, all obviously share at a very uh, intimate and deep familial type level. Um, and so I just kind of want to know, and I want you to think about this, because I, I don't know if I'm going to get it for you or not, but if I were to ask you, what do you want for Christmas, could you answer me? Hey, what do you want for Christmas? Now, I'm, I'm about to do something, and, uh, and I, I gave her a few minutes warning, but Andrea, would you mind coming up here real quick? So yeah, so I leaned over as we were just finishing the songs as Ryan was speaking and I just said to her, do you mind if I just bring you up on, she does not like this, so I just thought, <laughs> Merry Christmas. And a mic. <laughs> and a mic, because I want them to hear you. So here's, 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 yeah, <laughs> literally we need this at home so that you can like speak and I can listen to, she's very, she's a lot like me, she's very quiet. But come up, come up here, honey, come up here. This is, it's bring your wife to work day. And so I thought I would, thought I would do that. So here's, here, here's the question. I gave you. You know what Julie Weiss is thinking. <laughs> I do know what Julie Weiss is thinking. Um, like many women in this room, I am so glad I did not marry him. So <laughs> here. Amen. 
Why do I have a love-hate relationship with that statement? Okay. But, but here, here, she says this all the time. She literally, she says this all the time. She just says, you are so hard to buy for. So explain to them, not all the problems that we have in our marriage, but explain to them <laughs> the complexities and the difficulties of Christmas and buying me, and buying me things. Because I thought about doing this on my own. I thought, no, this is going to be way more fun to have Andrea come up. So just explain, like, why is it hard? <laughs> just, we, you know, I guess we've never done this in front of a room full of 800 people, but why is it hard to buy me something for Christmas? Why, why do I complicate that? <laughs> because you would have already bought it for yourself. Okay, so that's, uh, which is very, very true. I already would have bought it for myself. Is there anything else that just makes it complicated? No? Okay. We'll be getting counseling afterwards. Thank you, babe. Love you. <laughs> Let's give her a round of applause. <laughs> it's very true. I probably would have already bought it for, uh, bought, uh, for myself. Um, and, and another thing is that what makes it complicated to get things for, for people at Christmas um, is I, I know how to. I don't think there's ever been anything Andrea's ever gotten me. I know how to be grateful. I know how to say thank you and to genuinely appreciate it, to look at that, what she has done and to just say, wow, thank you so much because I know that when she gets me something that she puts her thought into it and um, she puts an intentionality in it. And I can appreciate that, okay? I really can. I can really appreciate that. And I can sometimes think, huh, you know what I would have gotten though, right? You know what I would have gotten? I, I really do believe that for the most part, I, I can buy better presents for me than you can for me, typically speaking. Because I know what I want better than you know what I want. And I know the specifics of that. And, and so that's kind of one of those reasons why it, it makes it a little bit complicated and difficult. It's not that I don't appreciate the gesture. I really, really do. It's not that I don't appreciate the insight. And then, and then there are many, many times where she knows something that I need that I don't know to ask for. And those are usually the more important presents. I didn't know to ask for that. I didn't realize I even needed that, but thank you for getting that for me. Um, because I look at my life and I look at the circumstances in my life and those things that I desire and those things that I want and I can kind of be one of those people that is just narrowly focused. Um, if I want something and I deeply desire to have it, I've got that tunnel, anybody else just that tunnel vision and I'm, I'm just gonna get it. I, I call it, like it's like this light switch that goes off in my head. And when I feel like I really, really want slash and I have to convince myself that I need it, it just happens. And so I'm grateful for the fact that I have people in my life like Andrea that God has blessed me with that say, I don't know if you know that you need this, but you do. And so she gets it for me. That's Christmas. I don't know if you know that you need it, Merry Christmas. What do you want for Christmas? And, and the beautiful thing about Christmas is it's God not only coming, but God promising that he would arrive, promising that he would deliver, and then doing so at a level where he understands 
perfectly exactly what we need to the point that we don't even have the ability in ourselves to either know it or to provide for it. That's Merry Christmas. Um, I don't know what you've been reading this week, um, but one, 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 one news source that I really, really enjoy is the Wall Street Journal. And so I couldn't help but just get my attention drawn to a particular article um, uh, on the 22nd that is entitled, You Don't Have to Be Religious to Feel the Awe of Christmas. You don't have to be religious to feel the awe of Christmas. And in this article, David likes to explain that there is something very interesting and very fascinating with this time of year. He confesses that as being a scientist, he he doesn't have any kind of scientific argument against the existence of God, but, quote, but neither can I find any objective evidence for God's fingerprints in this world. So for me, church has lost its luster, except at Christmas. He goes on to say, The Christmas Mass, I think he grew up Catholic, the Christmas Mass isn't just an entertaining thing to do, like going to see Radio City Music Hall, uh, their Christmas Spectacular, nor is it a simple reminder of a cherished family holiday tradition. For me, he says, and I suspect for many others, and I'm just going to assume for some in this room this morning, he actually says, going to church at Christmas offers a different kind of experience. He says, one that is spiritual, but not necessarily religious. See, what he picks up on, which we all know in this room, whether you find yourself like this very um, well thought out, uh, articulate scientist named David, he, he says this, we all seem to know, agnostic, atheist, or Christian, that there is a sacredness to life, something ineffable, but not necessarily divine. And what he's looking for every Christmas is awe. Now, now not the kind of awe. No. Awe. That that kind of wonder. And It's interesting that he's drawn to church He does point out that an experience of awe may not fundamentally change your life like a religious conversion, but it is readily available if you know where to look. He spent a lot of time trying to figure this out, thinking about God. He grew up in a tradition that explained God to him. Now, he outgrew that, but the one thing that he could not escape, the one thing he could not let go of, there's this feeling of wonder and this feeling of awe that comes around in Christmas. And so here's what he says about Christmas. I don't know if it's a Christmas morning or a Christmas Eve service, Ryan. Either one, it says this, Christmas services offer a route to transcendence, which is this greater than usness, right? That's what he's describing here. This transcendence for people of faith or non-believers alike. He points out that clergy, and that's me, clergy actually welcome 
anybody to come. And that's true. Ryan welcomed you, and I want you to know that we're glad that you're here. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we are glad that you're here. We're going to gather around the table to remember what he did for us. If you are wondering, we're glad you're here. If you're doubting, we're glad you're here. If you're just like David, we're glad you're here. He recognizes that. But then he asks this question as he concludes his article. What does God think about what I'm doing? He says it this way. If God exists, what does it think? And then he says, and here's his conclusion. If it's to worship a deity, then I'm clearly failing six ways to Sunday. But if it's to be a better person, more Christian in practice, but not belief, then I like to think God would be fine with me just stopping by. After all, the reward that spiritual experiences provide, they aren't necessarily selfish ones. Awe, he says, pushes us to pay goodness forward, to be more kind, generous, and honest to the people around us, to embody, in essence, the Christmas spirit, whatever your beliefs might be. Hmm. Sounds like he doesn't understand what he needs for Christmas. He knows what he wants. You know what I want? I want something that's bigger than me. You know what I want? I want something that produces in me a, a kind of experience that draws me close to the transcendent, whatever it is. I don't even have to read between the lines. I can read the lines. He wants to be a good person. He wants to pay it forward. And he actually believes that coming here on Christmas Eve, coming here to celebrate Christmas, will help him do those things. Now, he is right. You don't need to be religious. You don't need to be a follower of Jesus Christ to get a sense of the awe of Christmas. But to truly receive what God desires for you. No. That's not just an experience. That's a conversion. And so this morning as we look at our verses from our text, breaking them down somewhat verse by verse, I want us to have our hearts and minds open like we learned last week with the people around the birth of John the Baptist who opened up their hearts ready to hear and respond to what this child, John, the one who preaches the forgiveness of sins, salvation to the world, our hearts be open. And like Mary at the end of this, a heart that is open, treasuring these things. And so I pray, whether you're looking for awe, whether you're looking for meaning, whether you're looking for a reminder, or you're just here to celebrate the goodness of Jesus Christ, let us come and gather around the text and learn from it. I want to break it down, verses one, two, one, two and three. So the first three verses. Luke records very carefully in these opening chapters a number of uh, not just geographical markers, it happened here, it happened there, but time markers. Verse one, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, this is the great Gaius Octavius, this is the one that is kind of bringing together the Roman Empire. He takes on the name Augustus, Caesar just the name for king, 
that the entire empire should be registered. (laughs) Now, when you and I hear this, we just think, oh, cool, a census. Especially in the Roman world, maybe in ours as well, but especially in the Roman world, do you know why you have a census? So that you can tax people. That's the reason why. I want to know how many people are in what particular areas. And in in the ancient world, you you didn't try to figure out where people were living so that taxes could be distributed. Nope, you had everybody go back to their hometown. And you, you register there. And then in that moment, you have an opportunity to make sure that you will get your taxes. So this description about Caesar Augustus, one who is obviously seated on the throne, is taking a registry. He says in verse 2, this first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. And so everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. And that's what's going to happen to Joseph and to Mary. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth, which is in the northern part of Galilee, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the line of David. Now in Matthew's gospel, you actually see Matthew take very clear, um, uh, describing each of the generations, all the way from Abraham, all the way to David, so that we can see that Jesus actually comes from the line of David, because that's important. This is God's promise. This is God's fulfillment to put a king on the throne. I know that Caesar is in Rome, but there's a more important king, and that king is coming, and he's from the city of David, and so he's going to go to Bethlehem. I I think it's interesting um, that God uses everyone. Um, In the book of Daniel, one of my favorite scriptures is uh, kind of often repeated. It says, for the Lord God is sovereign over the kingdoms of earth, and he gives them to whomever he chooses. It's this, kind, it's this constant reminder, and I, by the way, I think it's really important for Christians to have a deep sense of this. And, and by the way, um, the idea of a democracy does not somehow immobilize God. I know it's like that's how things used to be, but now we the people, really. You, you think somehow we collectively can somehow thwart. No, the Bible actually teaches that God is the one. Now hear me, I get that that raises a whole series of additional questions. But it's not July 4th, it's December 24th, and so we're going to talk about this. Caesar, the one who thinks he is the empire, the one who is dictating, the one who's doing it for purposes of taxation, is in the hand of God, his servant. And he is the one, through this declaration, that brings about the fulfillment of this promise that Mary and Joseph are going to go to Bethlehem where it has been prophesied and promised. Again, do you see this constant theme in Luke chapters one and two? That people are responding to God's plan and God's purposes, not fully understanding and not fully knowing, and yet he is fully sovereign. What a great reminder at Christmas that all the way from Caesar to Quirinius, to someone who is managing an inn, to a young couple expecting their first child. God has all of this under his control. 
It says that they go in verse 5 to be registered along with Mary who was engaged to him and was pregnant. This is kind of again a reminder that the child that is within her is not come about through the regular means of childbearing. No, this is something that is fundamentally different. Mary is still engaged to be married, not yet married, and yet with child. Why? Because the Holy Spirit promised through the angel Gabriel that The Holy Spirit will overpower you, will come upon you, and that is how you will be with child. And then it says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Um, the, the, The need to go and be registered was actually not something that you had to go on a particular day. Um, some people would, would say that historically you had almost like a year to go to that city and to register. And for whatever reason call it poor planning, they decided, you know what, honey, you're nine months pregnant. Let's travel to Bethlehem. But it's while she's there, it came time for the birth. And then she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him tightly in a cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now that, that manger, by the way, just so we can clarify this, it'll, it'll come up in, in, in an important way when the, when the shepherds say, what sign? What, what's the sign? Here is the sign. The manger is not the stable, right? I know that word can sometimes be used for that, but it's usually not typically used for that. It is not the place where they are, which is outside of the dwelling. It is actually where all the animals are. That is where uh, Joseph and Mary uh, give birth, or Mary gives birth to Jesus. That's kind of where it happens. But being laid in a manger is like a feeding trough. Um, uh, One of the places I love to travel when I go to Israel is Megiddo. And in Megiddo, they have a number of these troughs. They're literally like these, usually carved out of stone. These stone troughs where the animals would eat. And that is what Mary puts Jesus in, as like a crib. Because it would not be strange for a newborn baby to be wrapped in a cloth, right? Everybody knows to do that. But to place them in a feeding trough, honestly, place them in a feeding trough? Um, I, I don't even think I have to ask for a show of hands. How many of you, when you, when you were just recently, you, you women that have had children, um, how many of you, like when the baby was born, you thought we really need to put this in a feeding trough? No, there's something very, very obviously unique by this. And this is where Jesus is essentially placed. Kind of the backdrop of this, which you know this, you just can't help but see in Luke's gospel the way, like the greatness of the world, you've got empires, you've got King Herod, You've got the governor, Quirinius, and and then you've got like just humble, nobody people, And, and Luke puts them like side by side, this profound sense of not nothingness, but truly like common, simple, which I find fascinating because even fancy people seem to be drawn to simple things. Verse 8, in that same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at, their flo- at, their, uh, at night over their flock. And then an angel of the Lord, the last two times an angel appeared in Luke's gospel, we know the name. This one, and, and usually they say this happens because it's not the name that matters, it's really what's being proclaimed here. 
And so you've got this very short introduction of this angel, and then the time is going to be drawn around what the angel is going to be saying. The angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Literally, the the Greek word there means to stand outside of yourself, to be amazed with fear. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The phrase there for good news is, is, is a word that was actually used within the Roman Empire whenever there was the birth of someone famous, someone of, uh, of national recognition or national importance. And this is the word that they use here. The angel comes, I have good news for you. And this good news is actually, it says, beginning with this, for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the the Christ, the Anointed One, the King, the Lord. So remember, that's what a Messiah means. Anointed One or King. So I know who Caesar thinks he is, and I know who Quirinius thinks he is. And by the way, I know who King Herod thinks he is, and I know actually who Pilate thinks he is. Almost a bit of a foreshadowing, right? Where Pilate and Jesus are, are, are standing side by side, and Pilate says to Jesus, why aren't you talking to me? Do you not understand who I am? Truly one of my favorite sections of Scripture where this man, Pilate, who is seemingly having power and authority and control, says to Jesus, the one who has always existed, the one who holds everything, the one who is the exact representation of of God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Pilate says to Jesus, do you have any idea who I am? Jesus knows exactly who he is. The real question is, does Pilate know? And he doesn't know. He doesn't know. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. This is the anointed one. This is the king. I know that you can't tell by any of the surroundings. The city begins to kind of tip it off a little bit, at least. When you go back and you look, and there is a a prophecy from one of the prophets that from the line of David in Bethlehem, although you're a tiny little town, from you will come the great king. But they're not able to add it up. And then the angel says, this will be the sign for you. Unlike Zechariah who asked and Mary who asked, this one the angel now provides. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth, nothing special there, and lying in a manger. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, For those of us that have seen the nativity scenes, yeah, not weird at all. We walk by those and it just seems like the most normal thing in the world. No. Did not see that coming. How do you know which one is the king? How do you know which one? It's like the king, the promised king, the one that we've been waiting for. Look in the feeding trough. The feeding trough. Are you kidding me? How how would you find someone of that level of importance 
in such a place? I don't know. He'll, by the way, be raised in Nazareth. To which the question is asked, and it seems like it's supposed to be a typical answer, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The implied answer is no. Nothing good. Nothing good ever comes out of Nazareth. Well, except for the only one that is good, Jesus, the Messiah. Get used to this. Get used to this. God being in places that you would not find him, and yet he is so recognizable. Which one is he? Which one is the one that's saving the world? The one in the middle. Crucified between two thieves. The one in the middle. He is the one that is saving the world. Strange, don't you think? No. It's how God works. From the manger to the cross in a tiny little obscure part of the world, God doesn't only dare to make himself known. He reveals himself just as he chooses. I often think, you know, I I hear this a lot from people, I just want better for my kids. Right? Is that not one of the most human things? One of the most human responses you and I have? I just want better for my kids. I just want more for my kids. It's interesting that in the great prerogative of God, as he chooses to demonstrate his greatness, there isn't just an absence of pretense. There seems to be a reveling in a glorifying himself in the strangest and most obscure places. And that is where he makes himself known. And this is why it's so good to have a deep understanding of Scripture. When God called Abram out of a land, and then, by the way, he would say this over and over again to Abraham and to his descendants, when I chose you, I did not choose you because you were great. I did not choose you because you were many. I did not choose you because you were good. I chose you because I chose you, because I loved you, because this was my plan and my purpose, to make much of me out of the smallness of you. He did this every time a prophet would say, well, who am I? And God's honest response was, you're nobody. But I am everything. And God does this time and time and time again. And yet every time we're shocked, we're shocked about mangers, we're absolutely shocked about trials and betrayal, we're absolutely shocked. It's, it's interesting, the two things that, that the Jews really did not enjoy about the Romans, and I would say probably the entire Roman Empire um, really struggled with these two things, taxation and crucifixion, very uniquely Roman. And this is how Luke's gospel begins and ends. And yet, God never says, I don't know what to do with this. God says in his greatness and in his goodness, in a plan that supersedes, because you and I don't know exactly what we need for Christmas. 
Nope, we're buying slacks and socks. And actually, I still have, I've not met anybody, I probably don't want to say it right now, is anybody getting a Lexus for Christmas or like two Lexuses? Those commercials are the most bizarre commercials ever. What did you get me for Christmas? Two Lexuses, one for you and I guess I got one for me, but one for you and one for me. And it's just kind of like, yeah, that's what we get. And, and honestly, the weird thing is, if you and I are honest, we can be more excited about those things. We really can be. Come on, it's church, we can be honest. We can be more excited about those things. I remember every year telling my parents what I wanted. Every year they tried to trick me that they didn't get it. And then next thing you know, it you know, comes in from a helicopter or something happens and Oh, and, and literally, they, they literally got me almost every year. Every year it arrived, and I'm just like, ah, and there, there's, I, I, th- I thought, it's like, I can't believe you're still surprised. We do this every year, and you're always shocked. I don't know where any of those things are. And I've actually learned to admit, I think I know what I want. But by the grace of God, I'm learning to know what I need. Merry Christmas. Look at verses 13 through 15. And suddenly, after the promise has been given and the sign has been explained, suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to the people he favors. It's interesting that this statement and peace on earth to the people he favors holds on to two very important ideas that are, that are found in the, this part of the world. The first of all, the Roman world. Um, uh, the, the, the Romans considered themselves to be the, the givers of peace. They literally considered themselves to be great uh, givers of this wonderful thing called peace to the point where there was a special phrase that was used to draw glory to Rome and it was known as the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana. Now, they had a reason for doing it. Pax is just the Latin word for peace. And everywhere Rome went, they brought peace. Truly, they did. At the end of a sword, they knew how to keep everybody in line. And before we just go, oh, that's terrible. Do you know what it brought? It brought financial security to that part of the world. It brought luxury. Now, not for everybody. Not for everybody. There were still people that were stuck on the outskirts. There were still those who were um, oppressed and disenfranchised. But... Rome was able to bring a level of success and, and genuinely peace. And they just wanted to be known as the, the peace givers. They literally considered themselves to be um, not, not God, but the God's gift to the world, bringing the peace of Rome. And so this statement actually really kind of stands against that. Peace on earth. The, the other group of people that love this word peace are the Jews themselves, right? We all know their word. What's their word? Shalom. Shalom. Rome brought peace 
not just for safety, but for financial purposes so that we can control and manage those things around us. And the Jews talked about peace. They would greet one another, shalom. And for them, it was this deep abiding sense of peace. It wasn't just a word from the 60s, peace. No, it was a word that, that tried to get to the very, the very heart of it. I would say, in a way, kind of what our friend from the Wall Street Journal, David, was writing about, this sense of awe, this sense of transcendence, this sense of, mer- of, of meaning, this sense of purpose, this kind of sense of peace. Maybe something that you're looking for. Something that you can't find. Can't find it at work. Even in the best of our marriages, can't find it there all the time. If we're honest, there is something that just constantly is escaping us, this this peace. And the angel promises that God will receive glory in the highest heavens by the way in which he genuinely brings peace into the world. Lying in a manger, preaching from a boat, touching lepers, sitting around a table, and dying on a cross. Peace on earth on the people that God favors. Now here's what's interesting. God favors everybody. And I would even say, in a very real way, maybe that's why you're here today. I know you think it's that she invited you or that he said you had to be here. But what if it was to hear this? What if part of God's plan is not just to make Quirinius and Caesar do things, but even your Christmas schedule in 2023. And I promise you, I understand that what I'm saying to you, you have most likely heard many times before. But I pray this morning that you hear it differently. God's offer for peace is to all. who receive it. Please do not be just impressed with the awe of Christmas or with family traditions or even with some kind of existential experience. No, God desires for you to know him, the true peace of Christmas. Verse 15, and when the angels had left them, they returned to heaven The shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they hurried off and they found both Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. Notice how the claws are not even being mentioned because that's really kind of a, a, yeah, everybody does that. But no, 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 lying in the manger. This is the sign that was actually promised. And then after seeing them, they reported the message. They were told about this child and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. And then this contrast. Everybody's amazed. Filled with awe. But Mary, 
was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. That's how God works. They happen just as he tells them. And Mary now has the rest of her life to try to figure out what God had done for her in the first Christmas. Packing and unpacking, truly this, the, the greatest gift I've received this Christmas is just that, that reminder from Luke's Gospels, which I've read many, many, many times, but opening up our heart so that we might receive. I, I find this fascinating. God in these narratives seems to go to great lengths by sending the angels and then explaining things and explaining things. Here's what's going to happen and here's where it's going to be. And yet, God does not give Mary everything that she wants to know about Jesus. Truly, as you follow along in the gospel stories, Mary's going to struggle with Jesus. She's going to struggle with who he is. Both Mary and the entire family is going to wrestle with who he is. Like, why didn't the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is going to give Mary Jesus, then why doesn't the Holy Spirit just take care of everything else? Maybe you're asking yourself that question this Christmas. If it's so obvious, if it's just so apparent that God is who he is and Jesus is who he is, then why am I still looking for awe? Why am I still searching? And maybe it's right here in these narratives, particularly in the one for this morning. Because Mary chose to linger longer at what God was doing and what God said he had done. And she does not let it go, kind of like her ancestor, Jacob, who was holding on to the Lord all the night wrestling. And he says, and I will not let you go until you bless me. And he is rewarded, Jacob is, rewarded by that request. I know I can't win this fight, but I will not let you go until you bless me. And the Lord blessed him. One will come from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way down to David, to Mary and Joseph. The two big themes that we see here I'm just going to state them. They're obvious. You cannot get Christmas without humility and the ability to ponder mystery. Humility and mystery. Because these are not just attributes about Christmas. These are attributes of God. This is who he is. And, and, and that is why I, I, I still marvel at it. You, you can't make the mystery take away the humility or the humility to take away the mystery. It, it's not just a, a key that unlocks it. It is, it is something that needs to be constantly reflected upon like Mary treasuring in her heart. I don't know why. I don't understand why. I don't get how. But I will stay here 
and reflect upon these things over and over and over again, I believe that in order to receive God's gift of Christ at Christmas, you just have to be humble. You have to, you have to be willing to admit, I'm not best at buying my own presents. I'm just not. I'm not best at fulfilling my own needs. When was the last time you thought that you don't know yourself as well as you think you do? Especially in the things that matter the most. Peace with God. You think you're good enough? You think you're kind enough? You think that somehow that you can earn the love and the favor of God by paying it forward, by trying to be more generous? Well, do you know what I did at Walmart last week, you know, with the bell? Impressive. No. The humility to admit I cannot make peace with God on my own. I I need someone. I need, this is the beauty of, of Jesus. Like I need God to fix this. And the one lying in the manger is. Listen to this line by Frederick Buechner. I kind of have a love-hate relationship with quotes like this. The incarnation is kind of a vast joke whereby the creator of the ends of the earth comes among us in diapers. I've had this conversation with a lot of very um, intelligent, albeit prideful, People, you're telling me God dirtied his diapers? You're telling me God dirtied his diapers? Can you, can you hear the dig? Can you hear it? I can hear it. You can hear the, hear the kind of the, oh, that's such a better idea. I'm so much smarter. Until we too have taken the idea of the God-man, that's Jesus, seriously enough to be scandalized by it. Personally scandalized by it. We have not taken it seriously as it demands to be taken. I just absolutely love the mystery of Christmas. And it's something that Charlie Brown can't figure out and the green, whatever he is, the Grinch, no, there's, there's a part of this that we just sit and marvel at what? At the humility of it? Sure, that's part of it. But at the very core of it, it's found in Philippians chapter two, that Jesus Christ did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And he took the form of like us. And then he kept on giving up his plans and his purposes and became perfectly obedient to God the Father all the way to the cross. And because of that, glory to God in the highest of heavens, peace on earth has now come on those that God favors. Who were those? Those are the ones who looked at these amazing things at Christmas, this incredible present, and said, I don't understand it. I didn't even know that I needed it. 
but thank you. We only have one service today, so I'm gonna let everybody make sure that they have it. So we're gonna wait a moment. <coughs> we're gonna wait a moment so that we can truly, together, eat and drink, thinking about the great humility and the mystery of God. That the creator of the universe could be bound in human flesh. That the creator of the universe could literally, this is one of the most amazing statements, that Jesus Christ was in fact God, fully, and they killed him. That's not humility, that's also mystery. Now, could not keep him. You've heard the story, right? Oh, that's Easter, sorry, got ahead of myself. And by the way, can I say, I just hope I see you between here and Easter, but that's another story as well. What you and I are here to celebrate is not just this aw, look how humble they are. Weirdly enough, it's not that kind of humble. It's the kind of humble that absolutely stupefies us. The mystery of what God has done. We see it in a manger but we experience it at the cross where Jesus' body was taken and was given to us. He said to his disciples, this is my body. Take it and eat. Let us eat. And this is my blood given for your redemption. Let us drink. I know I say it a lot, and, I, and when I say to you, what does Christmas taste like, you usually think, don't you? Turkey, cranberry, stuffing. That's the best Christmas meal you'll ever have, brothers, sisters. Now, in light of this great text from Luke, can we now stand and sing praise to our great God? Saying that we do not fully understand or appreciate all the words that we are going to say, but we choose to meditate on them and to sing them as earnestly as we possibly can, it's okay. You're not the first one to say something you don't fully understand. But let us say it in worship to our great God.